Welcome to Friars on the Farm Podcast. I'm Donovan, and coming to me via Skype is Roy. And am I awake? Is this real life? I think I may be dreaming. What What are you talking about? I, I what 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 are you talking about? There's what? Did you not see the news? The Padres signed Fernando Tatis Jr. to a 14-year, 340 million dollar extension. <laughs> I, I yes, I did. I did, and I'm totally joking. I I saw it, and then we freaked out. Me and Lydia just went crazy. Um, I. You know the, the the first the first thing I thought when I saw this was does Peter Seiler does he just follow Padres Twitter because how many people said sign him forever I mean and and fans do that when they have a player that they like and particularly with you know with Padres fans so you know so hungry for that young talent that uh, we have so <laughs> so long yearned for but um I thought God he just must have listened to the Padres fans and fifth. You know, 14 years is, it seems like a really long time. Well, and there's no opt-outs. He has a full no-trade clause. This is as committed as yeah. of a contract as you can make to a city. Yeah. It's So what, what comes to mind to me is we grew up watching Tony Gwynn, and he was one of the best players in the game for his entire career, for most of my, my entire childhood. And uh, he was loyal to San Diego. He was our guy. And now there's a whole generation of Padres fans that get to grow up with that same kind of experience. Hopefully, Fernando Tatis Jr. continues to be the superstar that he is and brings success and and all of this to, to San Diego. But he's so Tony Gwynn was a very good player who was very good at one thing and really good at a couple other things. Yeah. Fernando Tatis Jr. does it all. He's got style. He's got marketability. He's got, I mean, he's the entire package. He well, has, it is. Go ahead. It, well, it is the entire package. And that's the difference between, you know, someone like Tony Gwynn, who was quiet, lead by example, just hit, just hit doubles and, you know, through the 5.5 hole. And now you have 20, 25 years later, and you have a whole different kind of new ball player. This um, let the kids play the um, the kind of the changing of how players play the game, and you have the face of that in Fernando Tatis Jr. And it's not right. like you know other players like say you know like a Nolan Arenado or a you know a Javi Baez with with the Cubs. They can be a little polarizing because they're just there's an edge to those guys. But the edge that you have with Tatis is. He's almost a wild card with with the talent. Like you don't know what he's going to do at any given moment on the ball field to either wow you, uh, blow you away, score on you, or take a bag, or just change the game. The guy is he is really the face of the changing of Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, the people that hate him are just the people that wish that he was playing for their team. That's really it. I don't know how you can look at that man and and objectively dislike him. He is he is awesome. So before we run down all these rabbit holes, I we do want to roll out what our uh, show is going to be. We're going to talk to David Krell, author of 1962 Baseball and America in the Time of JFK, a very interesting book. Uh, and then after that, we're going to talk about the schedule release for the minor league affiliates and the spring training non-roster invitees, which is more relevant to us a spring a uh, minor league podcast yeah and also the uh you know minor league major league baseball came out with the the leagues for minor league baseball so the the die is cast the leagues are set um and they're not you know it's you know like the northwest league has become the northwest league north and south they're like there's no international league there's no pacific coast league um i think they're going to figure that stuff out later and those 
each of those leagues will start to kind of develop their own characteristics and personality. And then maybe you'll give them a, a name. But right now it's just like AAA East, AAA West, AA South, AA North. Right, right. Well, speaking of personalities, uh, there was some news that came across the timeline today. A uh, friend of the podcast, Lee Solomon, uh, who I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting in both Fort Wayne and in Lake Elsinore, um, he has announced that he is retiring from baseball and he is attending Ohio State Law School. He accepted a uh, what looks like an internship kind of a kind of a, a role. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when you if you listen, go back and listen to an interview with him, you can tell baseball was just a stop. What was just a um was just hey, I have a dream. Let's get let's play professional baseball. But you always felt through that interview that there was a higher purpose, that he had a higher calling, that he was gonna go on to do much greater things than anything that he could possibly have done on the baseball field. And that's not a knock. That that's that's just sensing and because you can hear it in him, there's more to do than just be a baseball player. And I think being a lawyer become and will not force him to be, but he'll become a driving force in his community and um, do really good things in the future. Right, right. Whether that means that he's representing, you know, actually legislating, uh, litigating um, for for the community, or if he's, I could see him going into politics at some point. He has the kind of personality and such an amazing head on his shoulders. Um, yeah, I was, I was impressed by the guy right away and then you look at all the replies and people talk about him like he's the best teammate they yeah. ever had it says that says it all and then buster only quote tweeted his uh, announcement and said you know really smart guy he's going to be in the front office someday and um you know coming from buster only a, a national writer talking about a minor league guy who you know had what two maybe two years in the padre system maybe three um that says a lot so that's an impact that he had in you know on their national stage so we wish him all the best. I can't wait to continue to follow him on Twitter and hopefully as his as his life unfolds and his career continues that we get to learn about what he's doing. Absolutely. I'm I'm definitely going to follow his career. Yeah. So this makes me think that so we just had this contraction of the minor leagues. Um, all of these teams are going to carry less people on their, you know, on their overall organizational roster and somebody like Lee Solomon kind of fits the the category, the tag of an organizational filler guy. He's a second. He can play all over the field. He does everything pretty well. Doesn't do anything like stand out, right. but it's the personality, it's the character that he brings, the leadership, the you know, to help the the players on his team. So he's not somebody that I, I doubt when the Padres drafted him that they picked him because they thought that he was, you know, prime major league potential talent. They drafted him for other reasons. Uh, yeah. And there's a role for guys like that. There's a very valuable role. You look at the impact he made on his teammates. Um, and so that's one aspect where where kind of uh, of thinning out the chaff of the minor leagues, you wind up eliminating guys like that, that he might never have had an opportunity to play pro ball at all if the draft wasn't more than 10 rounds or if there wasn't a fifth or a sixth minor league affiliate team in the organization for him. Absolutely. And he's going to his beloved Ohio state Buckeye. So he's, he's been, he's been in classes at, since the fall. That's what I kind of read that tweet as. Um, but it's funny because I watched that championship game with the Buckeyes versus Alabama and I got to hate to say it, but the, the Alabama just walked all walked all over Ohio State, and I just felt for Lee for that for that game. I was like, ah, 
But he went to Lincecum, and he's an Ohio boy, and he's going to Ohio State, so he's, you know, living the dream. Right, and this this absolutely is not a, a fallback for him. This isn't a, well, baseball didn't work out, so I'm going to do this. No, he had his eyes on, on a higher goal yeah. all along. Yeah. yeah. So I think this was in the plan. It was just a matter of timing. Um, and so maybe having a year off, you kind of forced his hand. Uh, but good for him. I couldn't be happier for, for Lee Solomon. Absolutely. So, got you. Know. So, so let's get back onto the Padres roster before we uh, before we kick it over to David Krell. Um, so, all the pitchers and catchers are reporting. You know, a bunch of other guys are showing up early. Uh, Mark Melanson, they just announced his signing today. Um, he took a, a sweetheart of a deal to come back to the to come play for the Padres because he wants to win. And what a weird world this is that a player is taking less money to play from the Padres because they give him the best chance to win. Yeah, it's not. It's very surreal. And sooner or later, we're going to have to start talking about how we're so surprised about this as the team. Peter Seidler said all along that we're here to build a championship team. And you got a little taste of that in 2015 where, you know, Prether says, well, let me try this, you know, and that's piecing together veteran players that didn't really fit, but it was a bunch of high-profile guys and got excited with the base. And then that didn't happen. AJ goes on the big, you know, the big international signings in 2016. Goes on. He had, the, we had what, the Padres had what, top five picks in the top three or four rounds? Like, they were just insane amount of draft picks. And that became, you know, that became the lava. That became the hot talent lava. And then the Eric Hosmer signing. And you're like, okay, that's, you know, fine, great. And then the Manny signing, you're like, holy cow. Um, this is big time. And, you know, the if he would have signed just you Darvish, it would have been, wow, that's a good pickup. But he picked up you Darvish, Blake Snell, uh, God. Joe Musgrove. Joe Musgrove. I couldn't remember Joe's first name. Um, you know, he's did five years of, of trading in one offseason and then yeah. signed the best best player out of out of Korea. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And so we as Padres fans, we we learned to look at the guys in the minors and believe in okay, so you got Hedges and Renfro and Manny Manny Margot and all of these these good players that are coming up and and that's what we think the future is. And it turns out that it all got kind of flipped yeah. on its side that that all of these amazing prospects that we on this podcast have have followed yeah. and gotten to know they wound up being used as trade pieces to put together this roster. But then you look at the roster that they've, that they're rolling out in spring training and it's, it's balanced. It's got experience. It's got youth. It's, they've got lefties. You got righties, you got power guys, you got finesse guys, you've got defensive flexibility. And it's it, unlike 2015, this is truly a balanced roster top to bottom. I'm it's, it's unreal. Uh, so Blake Snell, there's a, um, there's a publication, a, a blog called the Players Tribune, and he wrote a really insightful article for it about uh, taking you through game six of the World Series last year when he got pulled maybe before he should have been pulled out of that game. Um, and the the mental process that he was going through during that last inning uh, and then what happened afterwards and the trade and everything, I really recommend taking a look at this. The Players' Tribune. It's called I've Got Some Things to Say. Yeah, I did read a few a few passages of that and saw some of it on Twitter. And, you know, he's right. He's like, I come, I run out in the uh, fifth inning, and this guy's warming up. And I'm not thinking, okay, what am I going to pitch A.J. Pollock to? Or, you know, what's, what's Mookie looking for? Uh, he's like, why are the guys in the bullpen? And you need... 
you know, at a regular game, you want full concentration. But when it comes to the World Series, you want absolute focus and concentration. And and he was absolutely, he says in here, I was absolutely dealing. dealing. And it's, it's he's he's not even saying it like, he's seeing it from a humble place. Yeah. But anybody that was watching him, I mean, he was just dominating out yeah. there. Well, and what I like about it also is he didn't, it wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't blasting the the organization. He wasn't blasting Kevin Cash. You know, he was just. This is what I felt. What I liked about um, <laughs> what I liked about today, and I read was um, when New Darvish was asked about Fernando Tatis Jr.'s uh, his contract. He's like, "Who who's that? Guy? <laughs> who's that guy? I don't know who that guy is." And. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, if if somebody signed a long term contract, then I'm happy for him. Something like right, that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, you know, because the, the the deal hasn't been announced yet. It's you know, there's still a lot of things they need to work out before they announce a deal that big. But I mean, it's happening. All right, so let's. Uh, oh, let's... Did, so did you see the other thing that you Darvish said though? They somebody <laughs> asked him about the DH because as of today, there is no designated hitter in the National League. So they asked him about it, and he said, "I wish they would make a rule." Um, that players above the age of 33 could choose whether they want to hit or if they if somebody else should hit for them. And he said he thought of this last night as he was going to bed. The guy's got just a he's a witty, funny, insightful guy. I I'm so excited for this team. There are so many interesting people, so many likable players. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm so excited for this yeah. season to start. Yeah, and and it can't come soon enough. And all the uh, the the spring training content. So let's uh we're gonna we'll come back to. Uh, David Carell. David Carell, we had on several episodes ago, and we talked about Jesse uh, Jackie Robinson with him and and his life in and minor league baseball and his impact. And at that time, he was writing a book. He didn't have a title for it now. The title is 1962 Baseball in America and the Time of JFK. Now, this book is about more than just baseball. It's about everything that happened in the year of 1962, starting from January all the way to the 12th chapter, which is December. So we're going to talk to him here in a minute, and uh, it's really cool. So you guys stay tuned. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Welcome back. We're joined with David Carell, author of 1962 Baseball and America in the Time of JFK. Uh, Dave, it's been a few, you've been busy since the last time we talked. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. How is Jersey right now? It's got to be freezing cold. Yeah, we've had a few uh, incidents of weather. We're enduring a snowstorm right now, but I'm used to it. When you grow up in the area, it's pretty much a, a given that you're going to get some kind of snowstorm every couple of years. You know, I, I, I feel bad. I look out my window right now and it's blue skies. I think it's like 65 degrees, but it's always like that here, here in San Diego. Yeah, you know, my, my heart goes out to the people. Like, I mean, Texas is just a, a yeah. barren wasteland right now, and they're entirely unprepared. There in Jersey, you get cold weather, you get ice. People know how to deal with it, uh, but and there's a big part of this country where you've got people that are horribly unprepared and the infrastructure is failing them. So my heart goes out to all those people. Um, I, I almost feel guilty for having the blue skies and the sunny weather that we have down here. Well, it, it, you hit the nail on the head. They're unprepared because why should they be prepared for something like this? Right. No one thought that they'd get ice storms that would last this long, and uh, they don't have the sand or the salt that 
gets spread all over the roads the night before. So hopefully this will resolve in the next couple of days. Absolutely. So, so Dave, about the book, when we talked to you last, you were already writing about the book? I was putting the final draft together, and at that time, the name of the book was 1962 Baseball Hollywood JFK and the Beginning of America's Future. So the title has changed a little bit, but those elements are still in the book. Yeah, this is a much better. <laughs> this is a this is a much more broad, uh, broader title, and and I love it because yeah. it starts in chapter one. It starts in January, and it really starts a. Um, you know, it starts with the uh, with the beginning of the Colt Forty Fives in the Harris County Stadium Dome. What was it? how was that called again? The, the Harris County Domed Stadium, which later became the Astrodome. So the book starts with the power brokers of Houston breaking ground for this new complex that was so futuristic at the time. I mean, who thought that you could have an indoor stadium with seventy two degree temperatures? all year long nobody ever conceived of that in reality i mean the everyday person didn't i know walter o'malley had thought about it back in the 40s but this was definitely a harbinger of what was to come that was an architectural marvel of, it, of its time yeah. um so it was originally going to host the colt 45s um, right. and then how did it go on to become the astrodome you know, the Colt 45s morphed into the Astros name. I mean, there are different stories about how it happened, but I got the opportunity to talk to Din Mann, who was the grandson of Roy Hofheinz, who basically was the brains and the, uh, the political muscle and the, and the, I guess, the passion behind the Colt 45s and the Astros in the 60s. I mean, he really was the representative of that team. And, you know, Astros just kind of fit the time. It was a futuristic time. Astronauts going into space were trying to beat the Russians to the moon. You have the Jetsons on television. You turn on the TV on prime time, and there's a space-related episode in just about every uh, every sitcom. And, of course, you had things like I Dream of Genie, where the major character was an astronaut. So you had all of these different things, and Astros just fit nicely. And from the Astros name, you get Astrodome. Well, and real quick, was Houston the head of was, – was NASA there back then in 62? Right. right. NASA was headquartered in Houston and is to this day. Who sidebar today is the day that NASA landed another uh, lander on Mars. So we have yes. we have come a long way from uh, hey let's go to the moon in ten years to uh, we've landed Definitely. another. Yeah, the uh, the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center is how is based in in Houston. Right. Well, when when Eisenhower created NASA, LBJ was Senate Majority Leader, and he advised. Eisenhower he always worked with Eisenhower on how to get things done, and this is represented in the movie The Right Stuff, where he's consulting uh, President Eisenhower. And Lyndon Johnson was, I, I think, an unsung hero in the space program. Hey, David, I have a random question for you. Do you do you do trivia? Do you play Trivial Pursuit? Do you watch Jeopardy? Because you have an encyclopedic ability to just pull this stuff out. 
thank you. I was actually on my high school quiz show team. There was a, a, a quiz show called Challenge, and it was on a channel called TV3 in, uh, for Suburban Cablevision. That was the cable company back then. And we didn't quite make it to the finals, but we got close. <laughs> so then in the year, also the Mets. So every time Major League Baseball has, a, has an expansion, there's always two teams, yeah? Yeah, we had the Mets and the Colt 45s, and as you guys know, Houston had the Buffaloes for many, many years. It was a great minor league city, but getting the Colt 45s, getting a major league franchise was so incredibly important for that city. And for New York, we had one team for 58, 59, 60, 61, and in 62 because of the fallout from the Continental League, which we don't have time to go into, but the Continental League never got off the ground. But from that fallout, we got four expansion teams, two in the American League and two in the National League. And it was vital for Major League Baseball to have a National League team in New York after the Dodgers and the Giants left. Yeah, that was, and that wasn't too, uh, that was a little while, that was a little ways after, after they left. So, yeah. The first manager, and then how did the Colt 45s do? Because I know that the uh, the Mets, they lost like a record amount of games, like the worst since 1900. And, uh, you know, legendary manager Casey Stengel yeah. was the first manager. Well, the, the, the Colt 45s, I was going to say the Astros, the Colt 45s didn't do as poorly, but nobody really expected them to break 500. You, you were talking about teams who were – getting cast-offs, veterans towards the end of their careers. In a few instances, 1962 was the only major league season these guys had. But seven years later, the Mets went to the World Series and won. It took the Astros a little bit more time to get competitive and threatening. But fans still loved the team. You know, they still loved the team. You know, the Colt 45s and the Astros had the Buffaloes fans and the Mets had the Dodgers and Giants fans. And I, I think that there could have been a major league team where you guys are in San Diego. There could have been a major league team in other areas, maybe even Denver. But uh, Houston made the case that it had the demographics. It had the money. It had the opportunity for marketing, for radio and television that would get the fan base. And that's really what it comes down to. Will you get people to watch on television, listen on radio, and come to the ballpark? So you wrote the book around 1962. Um, Obviously, it's the expansion season, uh, and there's a whole lot of other stuff going on in the world that year. was it the the major league expansion that caused you to that inspired you to select that year, or were there other factors involved? It's funny, Roy. It happened in a writing workshop. I took this workshop at a place called Media Bistro, which is a continuing education school. People can take classes for different types of writing. And my book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, Our Bums, was born in that workshop. So I took it again. And the same instructor, he's a literary agent named Ryan Fisher Harbage, great guy, great mentor. And when I presented this idea about a book regarding the 62 Colt 45s and the 62 Mets, because no one had really done a side-by-side comparison and certainly not for the Colt 45s. And I was going to have all that other stuff in the background about you know John Glenn and JFK and so forth. He said, well, David, I know you're a baseball guy but books with 
broader topics get broader readerships. So think about it. And when I came home that night, I started Googling. And I knew off the top of my head there were a few things that happened in 62 for sure. I knew the Cuban Missile Crisis. I knew To Kill a Mockingbird. But then I started Googling, and I came up with 40, 50 topics, subtopics. Silent Spring came out that year. That's the book by Rachel Carson, which introduced us to the idea of pesticides being bad for food. Uh, Marilyn Monroe dying. Uh, we had to, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The book debuted that year. The movie Advice and Consent, based on the Alan Drury novel. You think what's going on in politics is bad? Read that novel, watch that movie. It's a very... Um, sobering look by a political insider about what really happens in the United States Senate. So all of these things happened. And when I went back to the class, I said, okay, I know there's a book here. Now the challenge is how do I organize it? And you'll see in the book, all of the Hollywood stuff is in one chapter. All of the literature discussion is in one chapter. That was the only way I could really figure out how to do it and keep it organized. And half the book is about baseball. So I got a chance to tap into my passion for popular culture, but also go beyond that with the history. Spent three days at the JFK Museum in Boston, went to Ohio State to see the John Glenn archives. So there was a lot of research that I had to do. And the challenging part and the fun part for me was piecing it all together like a puzzle. What story can I tell that will make the most sense and be the most entertaining? So the book is laid out in 12 chapters, and each chapter is uh, a month of the year. Um, and so, like you say, you're, you're categorizing things not necessarily in chronological order, uh, but with each chapter, you started off with an event that happened in that month, and then you yeah. you expand um, around that topic. But it goes through the the following, you know, whatever uh, follows, right? Exactly right, Roy. That was the only logical way to do it because the book had to be at least 50% baseball. And there's only um, one, well, there are a couple of chapters where I don't really focus on baseball, but I didn't want it to be half baseball, half something else in the in every chapter. I think I do that in, in the chapter about Bo Belinsky because his no-hitter happened in the same month that Scott Carpenter went up for his Mercury mission. But it just seemed to me to, uh, to focus on one topic per month. And when I found out that To Kill a Mockingbird premiered in December, I said, well, that's my way in. Classic movie. Some movies people might have forgotten like Experiment in Terror with Glenn Ford and Stephanie Powers and Lee Remick. But there were others certainly that were mentioned in there. And I think there's a book coming out about the 1962 movie uh, you know, movie list, and it was the greatest year for movies, all due respect to 1939. I mean, there were movies I just didn't have time to go into because the book would have been 700 pages. <laughs> Uh, I tell you, my wife would be would love to be on this call because she's a movie buff and uh, she would have known all the movies you just she just uh, that you just mentioned. Also, she would know the starting nine for the nineteen sixty nine Miracle Mets. Now there you go. There were five no hitters in nineteen sixty two, and it took him another what seven years to change the mound. It took Bob Gibson a year right to change the right. mound. 
Right, right, exactly, Donovan. It, it was, it was a great year besides the Giants and the Yankees in that seven-game World Series. Besides the National League playoff with the Dodgers and the Giants. So when I saw the five no hitters, I said, "Well, that's interesting. That's kind of a trivia question. You mentioned trivia before, but I have to pick one. I have to write about one person. And when I learned the story of Bo Belinsky." I mean, that's a book in and of itself. This guy had it all, but he came from a really hard scrabble life growing up in Trenton in the 50s. He was gifted as an athlete, but, you know, he had his demons. He, he had his alcohol demons. He didn't really pay attention to money. His relationships failed. His marriages failed, estranged from kids. But the people with whom I spoke uh, who knew Bo at the end of his career, or at the end of his life, rather, in the last 10, 15 years, they didn't know the guy who was carousing. They didn't know the guy who, whom they heard stories about, about drinking and just you know going up and down the Sunset Strip. I mean, this guy had everything. Women wanted to be with him. Men wanted to be him. Uh, he couldn't go anywhere without people buying him a drink. And it was a, it's a tragic tale. But the people that really took him under their wing in Las Vegas, uh, of all places, uh, they saw a more courtly guy, a quiet guy. I mean, he was dating actresses like Anne Margaret and Tina Louise. And uh, there's a story that somebody told me where he was working in this car dealership and somebody said, hey, Anne Margaret's going to be appearing at one of the casinos. Are you going to go backstage? Are you going to call the casino and maybe see her? And he said, that part of my life is over. So he had a certain perspective later on, and he was battling demons, like I said. And it's a really gut-wrenching, but I hope inspiring tale in the book, because it's never too late. And if he had lived past the age of 63, maybe he would have reconciled with his families. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Hmm. So I... I jumped on Wikipedia real quick and I looked up the five no hitters in 1962. Uh, one of our other uh, favorite authors is DB Firstman. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, yeah. But one of these names would fit perfectly in, in their book, Bill Monbouquet. That's a very alliterative. That's a very, uh, it just, it's one of those names just flows off the tongue. Right. DB wrote hall of name. Yes. Yeah, it's a very interesting book. It's, it's, a kind, it's the kind of a book that makes you think, why hasn't anyone done this before? <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of the feeling I had when I did this book, because I figured, well, I mean, 1962, Mets and Colt 45s. Uh, yeah, I, I could see where somebody might have done something about the 62 Mets, but okay, so mine will fit on the shelf. That That's good. And then I said, well... I was so excited about this this idea of making a broader book, and I said, well, someone's got to have done this already. I mean, how many books are there about the 60s and 69 and 68 and, you know, the bicentennial? And I, I just – I couldn't believe no one had not done it. Is that, is that grammatically correct? I couldn't believe it hadn't been done. Let's say it that way. I couldn't believe it hadn't been done. So then I was doubly excited, and then it was, you know, okay – now it's time to go to work. What's your research plan? What's your strategy? What's your time budget? What 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 do you want to happen? And so forth. Yeah, it, well, it, it has been done. It's called Forrest Gump. <laughs> okay, but this is not. This is way. 
It's way more in depth. You know, you go into um, we talked a little bit uh, off the air on uh, earlier today. Um, you write about the the first graduate of was it Mississippi or was it no Georgia, Georgia? Right. I I knew that I needed something about civil rights. And James Meredith has been written about. I could not add any value to that story. He was the first student, first black student at the University of Mississippi. So there are books about Mr. Meredith, and I don't think that I would have contributed contributed much scholarship on that point. So I did some digging, and I found that Mary Early was the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. And her papers are at the... Uh, you know, at the, the university, they're archived. So I spent three days down there in Athens, Georgia, going through them. And a uh, wonderful woman, music teacher, loved music. And there was an investigation on her before she could even come to the college. And I came home. Um, you know, you, when you when you go to an archive like this, you ask what um, you ask for certain papers to be photocopied and they, you know, they charge you whatever they charge you and then they mail them to you. So once I had them, I called her and the first thing she said was, do you have the report? And I said, I knew that you were going to ask me about that. It's in my hand. This investigation covered things like traffic tickets. I mean, it was so nonsensical. And when you read the news stories, when you read the newspapers on microfilm or on newspapers.com or on ProQuest, from that era, it's like living on a different planet. What these people had to go through yeah. to just get an education yeah. was ridiculous. Well, the, the, stones thrown at them, rocks thrown at them, taunts like you cannot believe. Just to sit in a classroom and get an education. Yeah. And and she is such a lovely woman. She was so uh, generous with her time. And and the funny the funny thing is that. It's a story that hadn't been told. And that was the theme of the book. I wanted to find new angles on stories you knew about and stories that you didn't know about. And people in Georgia knew, the university knew, and, and that was all great. But she is not at the level of a James Meredith in terms of fame. And she should be. Yeah. She should be. Well, and it's going to be one of those movies um, that they're going to come out. And like, I, I just, yeah. we just watched. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah. I had no idea that there yeah. was a true story until at the you know the very beginning and the very end. You're like, oh my god! You, you find out that this happened, and like the truth, you know, real life is stranger than fiction, and a lot of right. those stories it, need right. to be told. If if you go through her papers and you go through the letters that students had sent her years later, it's like Mr. Holland's opus with Richard Dreyfus. I mean, music is the universal language. Yeah. It's one of the universal languages. Math is another. I like to think baseball is another. But <laughs> they, they, she really had an impact on kids' lives. Now, you did dozens of interviews uh, during your research for this book. Uh, how, how did you – did you travel to, to visit people? Were they conducted by phone? How did you get in touch with these people? No, they were all by phone, and thank God for the Internet. So you can <laughs> – you can reach out by Facebook. You can call. If it was the case of a, of a celebrity, I was able to find the manager or the agent, and, and it all worked. I can't tell you that everybody gave me an interview, and a lot of interviews didn't make it into the book just because of space constraints. But we did get very lucky. 
with the ones that we put in the book. So I see here you spoke to Maury Wills. He won the National League MVP in 1962. Right. Um, and he was – we, we talk about how the game has changed. And he really is a, a kind of a, 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 a somebody you don't see anymore. He was – he hit for average. Um, and he stole a ton of bases. He was the first player, and in 1962, he was the first player to steal over 100 bases in a season. Um, what was it like talking to him? A little surreal. I mean, you're you're talking to a legend, and for the first, you know, five, ten seconds, you're you have that in the back of your head and in the front of your head, quite frankly. But then you have to do your job. You have to interview him. You have to ask questions. You have to follow up. You know, if he says something, well, you have to, you know, well, why, why was, if he says like Don Drysdale was the, the smartest pitcher, well, why was he the smartest pitcher? What did he do? Why was Walter Alston a good manager? Why, you know, tell me what was going on at that time in 1962. But the, what I didn't realize and, and I came to understand regarding the Dodgers is that stadium was just filled with excitement. It was new. It had debuted that year. And I can just picture 40,000 people chanting, go, 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 every time Maury Wills is on first base. And he basically had a green light. That is, that is fantastic. Also, 1962 was the year that Jackie Robinson was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame, yeah? Right. Jackie Robinson and Bob Feller, and that's carried on in the, or that's covered rather in the first chapter. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, Jackie didn't make it in by a big margin. I think it was four votes. So it, it wasn't like it was a given. God, thinking about but, that. But, but, it was cer- but it was certainly, it was certainly welcome. Well, and Ted Williams famously used his induction speech to, to campaign for Jackie and for you know, several of the other players that, you know, black players, Negro League players that didn't get the respect at the time. Well, well, Jackie had already been in. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm working on a book regarding 1966 and Williams made his declaration at his Hall of Fame induction speech and he mentioned Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and he was really the right. first icon to use his fame and leverage to call for that nobody and there were there was talk back then about well we'll we'll do it but we'll we'll have a separate wing right the negro league and i mean that's just ludicrous and and ridiculous I, i mean these guys were just denied the opportunity it doesn't mean they were you know less lesser skilled ball players they were denied the opportunity to play against babe ruth and Bob Feller, except maybe in exhibition games, barnstorming games. Yeah, we had Bob Kendrick on from uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum. Right. And, uh, God, and this is totally has nothing to do with the book, but they just allowed their stats to be um, kind of put into canon of Major League Baseball. It's going to be interesting to see how that gets folded into uh, the voting for uh, the Hall of Fame and and how they're going to go about that process of acknowledging and – the stats that definitely, you know, stand up to regular Major League Baseball. Right. So when you were talking to guys like 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 a Maury Wills or these, you know, you're interviewing somebody with a particular topic in mind. Did you find that your conversations would weave in with the other topics uh, that you cover in your book? Wow, that's a great question, Roy. I, I don't think so. Not too much. Um I would try to get somebody to say, well, 
like with, with Kelly Drysdale, who's Don Drysdale's daughter, I would say, well, you know, a big part of this book is Hollywood. What did your dad watch on television? You know, I know he performed. I know he was on the Joey Bishop show. Uh, he sang. He acted. What What was, you know, what was he like off, you know, off the field? What do, you know, What movies did he like? What TV shows did he watch? So something like, something like that to just kind of um, not overshadow, but maybe show that these guys were real people and you know they do the same thing that you do when you go home you eat dinner you watch television you go to the movies whatever and that was really my way in to maybe universalize if that's even a word uh to to bring everything together true and we don't we think of baseball players as being very one-dimensional uh and the same thing with movie stars and all this we know them for one thing um but I, that's one thing that, I mean, many things that I appreciate about your book is just how you cover the entire spectrum of, of, of culture that was happening at the time. Um, you know, and you, you package it around baseball, uh, but there was so much going on in that season. Um, so you stated earlier that you wanted to make the book at least, you had to keep it at least half baseball. Was that a rule that you set yourself? No, that was an agreement I came to with University of Nebraska Press because it is primarily being sold as a baseball book and it wasn't really a stretch once I had all of this baseball information, Bo Belinsky, the five no-hitters, the NL playoff, the World Series, etc. There was so much drama going on that season. It was not a problem to get to the 50% mark. I just wanted to make sure that I had sufficient space for the other things because great year for television, for movies, for literature, as we discussed, not to mention JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Jackie Kennedy giving a televised tour of the White House. That had never been done before. That was revolutionary. And I really needed to have space to show the culture, to show everything in context, because the through line of this book, Donovan and Roy, is progress. This was the year where everything kind of turned. John Glenn becomes the first astronaut to orbit the Earth. New York gets a National League team. Houston gets a National League team. Things were going on in the movies that really hadn't been done before. There was a movie in the 40s about alcoholism called uh, Lost Weekend with Ray Milan. Yeah. But Days of Wine and Roses really was a hard-hitting movie <laughs> in 62 about alcoholism. You had things like To Kill a Mockingbird, as we mentioned, with uh, the realities of racism. Uh, even though it was set in the 30s, it still was very poignant for the early 60s. Um, you had One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a novel about mental illness. And it's harrowing. Yeah. Even today, I mean, you read it, it's harrowing. Yeah. And then you watch Advice and Consent, it's like watching uh, it's like watching what's going on today except in black and white. <laughs> well, and so it, it kind of seems like 1962 was the year, I mean, all around with the culture and with the expansion of baseball was kind of almost the beginning of the end of our innocence almost a little bit there. Well, when, I, I had that I had that said to me by so many people when they found out I was writing about this and they said, "Oh, David, that's great. The, the last year of innocence. Not really. I mean, we almost went to nuclear war. You have Kennedy facing off against the Russians. You have this, the space race. You have some very serious things going on in the civil rights arena. So it's not like all of a sudden it was innocent. And the funny thing is, and I was talking about this with Donovan uh, 
earlier today, if you're a child of the 70s and 80s like I am, you watched a steady diet of reruns from the 60s. Yeah. So you watched Gilligan's Island, Gomer Pyle. Speed Racer. Speed Racer, the Andy Griffith show, yeah. Hogan's Heroes, Bewitched, Hyper Mucini, it goes on and on and on. The rather benign shows. I was not exposed to one-hour dramas in reruns. I had heard about them, but I never saw them before. So you had things like Route 66 and Naked City and Rawhide and so forth. Well, Route 66 is about two guys in a Corvette traveling across the country, and everywhere they go, they interact with people and help them. Well, the first episode that aired in 1962 has these two guys played by George Maharis and Martin Milner in Boston, and they get recruited by the FBI to go undercover and take down a white supremacist. That's 1962. Yeah. That's wow. as far from innocent as I can find. Yeah. And you can make that same episode today with the same script and it would hold up. Yeah, I go, yeah, of course, absolutely. Well, maybe maybe using the word innocence, maybe it's just the challenging of of the of the you know, of those 50s and 40s kind of like post-World War II suburban life. This is how it's going to be. Husband gets up, goes to work, wife stays home, you know, and raises the child and cooks dinner. Um where all these other ideas that were just starting to really blossom and Bring on the the first baby steps of the summer of love, and from you know sixty seven to sixty eight, right. you're doing the book in sixty six. You said, um, mm-hmm. just kind of like the flowering of uh, a cultural revolution post World War Two. Things were getting a little more real, and just to extend this a bit further, when you got into the early seventies, then you saw things on television that certainly were not being discussed in the early 60s, at least not on a sitcom. You, you see all in the family. Yeah. They're talking about Vietnam, Watergate, inflation, sexism, feminism, racism, on and on and on. And those were the discussions happening around the kitchen table. Yeah. Well, they might have been happening around the kitchen table in 1961, 1951, 1941. But this was the first time where 40 million people are watching it at the same time. So there was a certain benign quality that continued through the end of the 60s and then early 70s. And then I think in 1971, CBS canceled all of those rural-based comedies like the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres, Petticoat Junction. (laughs) I still sing that song every once in a while with my wife. Well, Dave, we really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, it looks like we're going to have to book you for the future uh, and when you come out with the book 1966. And and I got to say here, we have a copy of the book. You don't even have a copy of your own book. Is that right? Well, I, I have a copy of the galley proofs that I that I had to go through with the editor and, uh, and, and start, you know, just tweaking here and there and making sure everything was lined up and the commas were all in place. But, uh, but no, I'm, I'm sure I'll get a copy shortly. <laughs> it's, and I should say it's available on May 1st, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or University of Nebraska Press's yeah. website. Well, this is a fantastic book and this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, and I'm looking forward to more in the future. Me too. Take care guys. Thanks Dave.
Be well. Bye-bye. Locomotion. That was really cool. It was good to catch up with with Dave. And um, very interesting book. I could tell he could just he could go on for days yeah. about. I mean the the content that he must have, have cultivated to gather for that book. And he was telling us after after we stopped recording that he could have written two or three times as much if he wanted to. And I could definitely see that he didn't even touch on music. Yeah. So I yeah I have to really plug the book again. Nineteen sixty two. Uh, the year of baseball in America in the time of JFK. David Krell. David Thank Krell. you very much, David Krell, for coming on. Okay, so back onto the agenda. Um, the schedules for minor league baseball came out today. Yes, they uh, did. And you noticed, what did you notice? Did you notice anything? Well, so I noticed, so I'm, I'm looking at Jeff Sanders tweet where, cause I'm, I'm short sighted. I'm, I want to know when's the next time that we can get out to a game. When are these teams going to start up? So the Chihuahuas are going to start April 8th at Salt Lake. And then a whole month later, almost the missions, the tin caps and the storm all start on May 4th. Yeah. Uh, the missions start at Corpus Christi. The tin caps will be playing against West Michigan at home. And then the storm starts at Visalia. Their home opener is May 11th versus Inland Empire. And I really hope we get a chance to be there. Absolutely. So you notice that this year is different because of COVID. This is the last vestiges of, of COVID, we hope, is the minor league players will not be in camp or anyone in high A, A ball, and double A will be in a separate camp. Major league right. baseball players and triple A. So, so triple A is starting basically at the same time they did last year. The rest of A ball and double A ball, they're starting about a month late, but they're also going about a two weeks deeper into into September. So right. I, I don't think the season's going to change length. It's just going to change start and end dates. It's yeah. It's a little different because the, uh, the, the teams were, they're allowed to give a list of 75 players that they can have present in spring training in major league spring training. So that's your major league triple a, and then whatever other invites they want to bring. So we'll go down those a little bit later. Yeah. And then it's also 75 additional staff. So all of your coaches, trainers, your clubhouse managers, and all of that, you can only have 75 other personnel on the facility. They're trying to create some sort of a pseudo bubble. Yeah. Um, Jeff Sanders pointed out that triple a will be 142 game season, double a and single a leagues will have 120 games in their regular seasons. Yeah, that, I kind of like that. It's standardized across those levels. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and those are about the same as a regular season for those two. The good thing though, is the first season of these high a guys playing, you know, some of them back to Fort Wayne will be playing in May instead of, you know, April where it's just, and I'm sure it's pretty cold in May in, in Fort Wayne in the Midwest, but it's not going to, it might be a little bit warmer. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause that first month is always weird. And especially the guys, the, the Latin players yeah. that have never seen snow and they, they don't know how to prepare their bodies and play in, in cold weather. Yeah. That's where you see guys like Ethan Skender or, you know, people from the Northwest that, that they grew up in that they have an, an advantage. So then Tatis goes out and has a, a bad first month and some journalist tries to, tries to dump on him and he goes, Oh, let's, let's talk in September. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we won't have that this year. We won't. And, you know, and it does kind of make sense that the, the younger guys start in a warmer climate, you know, and then that's great. They're going to start in California um, where it's warm all the time, obviously. And, they have a full year of, of minor league baseball under their belt 
to start their career or, you know, yeah, you know, to start a full season of baseball and going back to the new normal now, like nothing has changed other than, you know, we've, we're a little more streamlined. We're a little more efficient. Um, the minor league experience is going to be the same. You're still going to go to the game. You're going to get dollar hot dogs. You're still going to get the in-between game, um, you know, the games. And you're still going to have that atmosphere. It's just a little bit more pared down, a little bit more, um, you know, I don't know, baseball-centric, but it's the same thing. And here's the thing about minor league baseball is it always has been changed. As long as it's been that structure of minor league baseball and the way things have been done for so long, how many times have the Padres changed affiliates? How many times have other teams changed affiliates? Hell, when True. we first started this podcast, it was it was the affiliate shuffle. You know, there were like eight to ten teams, I think, changed affiliates. Um, that was a whole storyline every offseason. Yeah, but right. now all these teams have 10-year agreements. Yeah. And, and that's the thing where, where they can really plan long term. And, 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 you know, there's some stability there. So along with the changes in minor league baseball – Major League Baseball has released that the player salaries are going to increase, ranging from 38 to 72 percent. Um, the facility is going to be modernized. We're going to go over what the storm did here in a minute. Um, so you're going to get better facilities, better travel, uh, just kind of an overall better experience that you really need from an elite athlete. When you're trying to get these guys to learn the game at a high level, you need the best environment possible for them to do that. True. Yeah. For example, the schedule that just came out, you'll notice that there are consistent days off and the series are longer. Um, So maybe there's a competitive edge one way or the other by seeing the same team four or five days in a row. But then the flip side of it is that there's less travel. uh, There's less of that, you know, sleeping on buses in the middle of the night because now there's there's going to be a travel day scheduled in between. Uh, there are a lot of changes that are, are you know, improving the conditions. You mentioned, mentioned the salary increases, but as we covered on a previous episode, the clubhouse staff is going to be uh, better compensated yeah. and clubhouse dues are no longer a thing. So that actually keeps a lot more money in the player's pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And and to go back to um, kind of my, my thought was seeing the same team for four or five days in a row, you're going to have to make adjustments. Like it's almost – you know, you're going to make those adjustments a little quicker. You're going to have to get better, I think, faster in a way because you're going to see the same guys for five days straight. And Well, and that helps That helps a team put together a plan. Uh, you know, in the minors, there's not a whole lot of data. There's not a lot of scouting, advanced scouting, but then they get up to the majors and there's an overwhelming amount of data. So how does a pitcher put together their game plan? So now you know that this player goes the other way. This player swings first pitch. This player hunts for fastballs. They, they just over the course of a five game series, they'll start to figure that out and it, it kind of prepares them for what they'll do at the higher level. And it'll also help the teams analyze who's good at making those adjustments and who struggles. Right. Right. The development side of it. Uh, but kind of move on to our local storm. They have two new huge video boards. They get a new speaker stadium, a new stadium speaker system. They've upgraded a video production booth and a whole lot more. Now we talked to, I talked to off the air with, um, with Dominic Lorenz, who used to play for the, oh, not play for the storm, used to work for the storm. And he mentioned to me about the possibility of there being production as in video. 
So the whole thing about Major League Baseball taking over is they also want to be able to get these games televised. And there were only so many teams in the Cali League that were televised. And the Storm weren't one of them. So hopefully um, hopefully they got that that capability on board. And on days when we can't make it up there, uh, we'll be able to watch it online. Yeah, that's fantastic. That That is so great. So our final topic on our uh, on our agenda here, the spring training non-roster invitees. And we've already started to see a couple of these pitchers roll in, um, but there's quite a good list. It's it's a diverse list of players. Um, so let's go back and forth. So first, the catchers, Juan Fernandez and Webster Rivas. Webster Rivas is in his later 20s. He was at the alternate site all last year. But Juan Fernandez, his nickname is Chimmy. Um, he was in Fort Wayne in 2019. Uh, he was he was backing up Blake Hunt essentially. Um, the, the guy's a defensive. He's really good defender, but he's got he's got so much personality. Um, we were there for that crazy comeback that that Fort Wayne pulled off. And so afterwards, we were hanging out over by the kind of by the locker room area. Um, where the reporters were waiting for people to come out and interview. And at one point he shows up, uh, Juan Fernandez, he's got a bat and he's acting like he's talking into a microphone and he's interviewing Blake Hunt about, well, tell us about your performance. And it was so funny because his, his English is, is obviously it's broken. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a Latin player. Uh, so his English isn't great, but seeing him ham it up with those guys, the guy's got so much personality. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Juan Fernandez. I know the guys on that roster just love that dude. Absolutely. And I mean, only two non-roster catchers. This really kind of shows the, the, uh, the, the way major league baseball is going. You don't have a ton of these non-roster guys, uh, coming to your organization because you only have so many guys that you can fill. Now there's a lot of bullpens to catch though. Yeah. So you've got your bullpen catchers. There's uh, Peter Somerville. And I'm wondering if they're bringing on another bullpen catcher for the major league team. Uh, but I would imagine that you've got some coaches and maybe some other position players, maybe that would be taking some reps at catcher. Well, I'm thinking more about the guys in the system already. The guys that we didn't see in the complex, you know, the a double a triple a everyone that's, you know, that's already in the system. And they're only adding two non-roster guys. Right. But with all those bullpens to catch, you just, you need bodies. That's why you see so many, this time of year, you see a lot of minor league signings um, just because they need so many people to catch bullpens. Yeah. Cause you go, you go to Peoria and at the side lot, there's, I want to say it's like eight rubbers, you know, eight pitching mounds all lined up and you've got pitcher after pitcher just yeah. kind of filing through. And so you need, you need a bunch of bodies to catch to catch yeah. all those bullpens. <laughs> then you got five fields to, to to play in. Moving on, the infielders: C.J. Abrams, Ivan Castillo, Eggy Rosario, Pedro Florimon, uh, Gosuke Cato, Cato, uh, and Nick Tenelu. Couple guys. Yeah, Gosuke Cato is from. I want to say he's from uh, Rancho Bernardo. Really? Yeah. I did. I didn't. The, Florimont, I don't recognize any of those names. Uh, Pedro Florimont, he, I believe, he actually has a little bit of major league time. He's an older, an older player. He's okay. an infielder, plays all over the place. Right. Uh, but obviously, C.J. Abrams is the 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 premier name on here, and he's rocketing up all these prospect lists that are coming out now. Everybody's putting him in their top ten, if not top five, of all MLB uh, prospects, which is amazing since he's barely stepped off the off the. Uh, the complex. Yeah, he hasn't played above. He played one game in Fort Wayne, and that was it. So moving, yeah. moving on, the outfielders, Robert Hassel the third, and Joshua Mears. Good to see Joshua Mears back kind of in uh, in the mix. 
I'm curious to see what he's going to look like because he is he's a teenager still, but he's a big boy with big power that they talk about. And then Robert Hassel, the third, and he's another guy that's shooting up these these prospect lists with the impression that he made at the uh, well, not the alternate side was a black hole. But during the the summer camp, he was making a name for himself. You know, you were pointing out all the all the good hit uh, pitching he was hitting off of. And then in the instructional league, scouts were able to get some looks at these guys and Robert Hassel impressed everybody. So we got a whole bunch of right-handed pitchers, Pedro Avila, Nick Birdie, uh, Nabil Chrismat, Miguel Diaz, Mason Fox, Chase Johnson, Reese Knair, Justin Lang, Parker Markle, Evan Miller, Jacob Nix, Aaron Northcraft, Jacob Rame, uh, Darius Valdez, and Steven Wilson. A uh, couple of friends of the podcast in that list. Several of them. It's good yeah, Reese Nair. Yeah. Uh, I got the opportunity to throw out a first pitch at the storm, uh, and he was the guy that caught my pitch, so I have a connection with him. Yeah, he's real fun. Uh, you know, I went to several games last uh, last time we were able to go to games, and he's a riot in the dugout. Like, when they're, like, guys coming in, they're dancing around, farting around, uh, and he was starting to make a name for himself that year. Uh, and then 2020 just took a took a big turn. So also Mason Fox, I, I see Mason Fox easily starting in Double A, high 90s fastball, really good off speed, uh, really good breaking ball, I believe. Um, you know Justin Lang was the was God was he the last holdover from anyone traded from the 2020 from all the pitchers that were 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 signed for um it was it 2020? Yeah, yeah, that was last year's draft. Yeah, it seems yeah. like all those guys have been traded away already. You know, lots of Jagger Haynes is still around and he's going to be in this next list. Yes. Uh, but Steve Wilson and obviously Darius Valdez, who both those guys throw really hard. Steve Wilson having a fantastic season in uh, in the winter leagues. I really Pedro Avila is coming back from from Tommy John surgery. Yeah. He pitched that one game in the majors and he was pretty darn good. Yeah. I had high hopes for him. So curious to see how he comes back. And then obviously Jacob Nix, he's been putting in some work. Uh, he's been posting a bunch of videos on Instagram looking really good. He's got four fully developed pitches. He's got his fastball. He's running up in the upper 90s. So he's put the doggy door incident behind him. He's addressed it with candor and with yeah. humor. I, I appreciate the humility that he's shown from that. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of guys who uh, deserve a, you know, who are on a, on a comeback. And he seems, he seems hungry to make a name for himself this year. Yeah, definitely stating that he wants to be a starter. Right? He wants to mm-hmm. be a starter. But left-handed pitchers, you got Daniel Camarena, Ethan Elliott, Brady Feigl, Mackenzie Gore, Jagger Haynes, Aaron Leisher, Nick Ramirez and James Reeves. Good to see Jagger Haynes in. Yes. In, you know, with the big league camp. Yeah. His dad tweeted out to us. It sounds like he's, he's done a lot of, uh, a lot of growing up both physically and kind of, you know, maturing um, just since being drafted last year. So we may have to ring him up once he gets out to the, once he gets off the complex. (laughs) Now I stated that maybe he could start the year in Lake Elsinore. Um, His dad doesn't seem to think so, but Hey, look, this is the talent has now boiled down. And if he's got a, you know, a non-roster invitee to big league camp, they definitely, there's something that they've seen. Obviously that growth, that maturity has, has been noticed by the big league front office. So they want to see what they got. They want to fast track these guys. I really think that the game is getting younger. And if you can play and you've had two years in the minors or a year in the minors and some, some guys from major league baseball had less than a year in the minors last year. Um, came up and made an impact and sure he is very young but 
to be around all that major league coaching, around the major league guys, to just kind of it not be so foreign and so scary when you're a young kid walking around with all these big league guys and you're a sponge. So I, I really like this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how – because you've got the guys that were able to participate in the uh, alternate site last year, like CJ Abrams. And then you've got guys that didn't have that opportunity, like Edgar Rosario, uh, who from a developmental standpoint, they weren't that far off. You know, obviously the, 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 like the talent projections are a little different. Uh, but Eggy Rosario, he's got a path to the majors. Yeah. Uh, but did he regress last year, not being around the game? Um, was he putting in extra work? Do some of these guys, are they showing up with some some different skills, some different looks? We're going to see some changed mechanics from guys. Uh, maybe some of these pitchers will be working on some very different stuff because we just haven't seen them for so long. Yeah, Eggy had a good season in the Venezuela League. He did. Yeah. He had a very good season down there. Yeah. Um, so that's well, so now I'm, I'm excited to see every morning when my phone's buzzing and I see all this content from the Padres account. Oh my God. Spring is in the air and it is, it is wonderful to be back. It is absolutely. And one of the things that we didn't mention, cause it's a major league thing is all of the major league social media people for all the teams were laid off. So as a part of this kind of folding everything in together, all those guys were, were let go. Was it all of them? All of them or most of them. So wow. I, think, I think they're going to have. I saw a partial list. I didn't. I I was curious if the Padres personnel were among that list. You remember Justin? I can't remember Justin's last name. He was the he was the social media guy for Major League Baseball. Justin Lafferty. Yeah, Justin Lafferty. He was the. Yeah, he's he's been out of the. He he was he was let go by them a couple years ago. But he worked for um, Major or he League walked Baseball. away. He worked, he worked right. for Major League Baseball. So right. So that position I don't think was ever really taken over. And it, it was. It was? Yeah, it was. Uh, what was the guy's name? Jo- um, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, that's, and that's fine. Well, I'm not sure if he has a job, but Nikki really does most of the uh, social media for, for the Padres. So, and she, right, Nikki, he, pa- Nikki Patriarca. Yeah, so that was interesting. Well, that's spring it. is here. Ew. Ew. Let's get All it. Right. Oh, my God. So, let's get it. So open up your Twitter and check out all the content from the Padres and from everybody else. Uh, But in the meantime, we'll be taking notes. My name is, you can find me on Twitter at Zippy underscore TMS. You can find me at SD Donovan. All right, let's go Padres. Go Padres. Good day, sunshine.